Welcome everyone to How Winners Win. I am Daniel Blue. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Kita Spears, aka Haiki. What up? What's up, winners? Our guest today is the one and only Brad Zolis, and I have quite the introduction, so sit down. If you're standing right now, if you're like cruising, you know, make sure your car's in park. Slow it down a bit. Yep, yep. So he is an award-winning business author, a serial entrepreneur, and the co-founder of nine companies during his four-decade career. One of those companies turned Brad into a web pioneer during the first dot-com boom. He was a co-founder of K2 Design, Inc., which started as an idea in a coffee shop with no funding whatsoever to become the first dot-com digital agency to go public on NASDAQ with a valuation of $26 million. When the millions w- mattered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like Austin Powers, you know, $1 billion. Uh, I'm not done yet, guys. Hold, hold on. Uh, the Wall Street Journal listed K2 as one of the top stocks to watch. Uh, with Brad's insights on generational leadership development, branding, and modern management strategies have been featured, both print and online versions in Forbes, Advertising Age, USA Today, New York Magazine, International Business Times, and the Hindu Business Line, to name a few, along with radio, podcasts, and television appearances on CBS, Roku Network, and CGTN America among other media outlets. I'm really looking forward to getting Brad's insights on winning. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Uh, Winners, we got a big dog in the house. No, no, no shit. Thank you. I, uh, but, you know, sometimes when people are reading my my bio, I'm like, who the hell is that guy? You know, because I don't know about you, you know, you live long enough and you look back in some of the things you've done and you're kind of like, huh, oh, wow, yeah. And I think we undervalue some of the things we've actually accomplished. Like you, Daniel, you've been bulking up lately, hitting the, hitting the, hitting the bricks, lifting weights and pushing the limit. Um, but we don't put value on that sometimes. You know, I, I'd love to dive deeper into that because I think a lot of winners, they struggle with that. I know personally, I struggle with it in the sense of, man, like, I've accomplished some things in life, but then I don't want to pat myself on the back too much because I don't want to get content. But then there's days where we're in the funk and we have to remind ourselves and look in the mirror like, we're a fucking tough son of a bitch. Like, we're a winner, right? So it's that dichotomy, right? Right. Well, how many of you who are listening, uh, you've struggled with failure. And in those moments where your your teeth have been knocked out, you're sitting there and you're like, I got to do this one more day. You got to have that list on your wall sometimes of the stuff you've actually done because you need to be reminded, you know, a swift kick in the back of the head um, that you've actually done a couple of things. And it's not about your ego. I want everybody to just put that aside. It's really about going, oh yeah, I forgot my greatness. I forgot my genius. Um, And someone told me once that you should keep a genius file. And all it is in my genius file are letters from people who I've either helped or I've done a keynote or someone who just wrote me a letter and said, hey, I want to thank you for doing this. Because in those moments where, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know this, um, your success could be right around the corner. But until you get there, there are those days where you're just going to go, why in the F am I doing this? And that genius file will help you remember why. That, that fills up your soul, right? Because Keita, we had totally. Trevor on the podcast and Trevor's a multimillionaire and the quote that stuck out to me, he's just like, dude, money fills up the bank account, yeah. but impact fills up the soul. And that's what the genius file does, what you're just saying, right? Totally. It's a reminder of, of some of the people you've helped, you know, because why are we here? 
you know, uh, we're, we're from all backgrounds, you know, Christian, Muslim, you name it. Um, but at the end of the day, we all can agree on this one thing. When you give back to another person without expecting anything in return, um, you light up some of their light in them. You know, it's like lighting a candle. You know, you don't lose anything by taking a one candle and lighting another candle. And that's kind of what I feel you should do. You know, you get to a point in life, and I have, where I look at my resume and I go, okay, I've done all these great things. Whoop, they freaking do. I'm going to wind up in the cemetery just like everybody else. Um, who am I helping? Who are the people I've impacted? Am I... Um, helping them to get to the next level? Am I seeing talent in them that they can't see in themselves? Um, you know, that's that's the way I was raised, actually. I'm glad you brought up being raised that way. Because um, for me, kind of related to what you just said, it's, it's mm -hmm. tough to give myself credit sometimes. And it's really, really easy to forget the dope shit that you've done yeah. when you're constantly working at the next thing. You know, we were talking before we got on the air, you know, how someone told you, gave you a compliment. Brad, you're 100% in on everything that you do. And once you complete it, you're looking to go to the next yeah. level. Yeah. So did were you always wired like that? Or did was this instilled into you at a young age? Because I know you mentioned your father. <laughs> you know, he had some, some tricks for you. Uh, he was actually my stepfather. My last name is Hungarian, and it's his name. So he's the first immigrant born in America from Hungary. Okay, My grandparents met here in the United States escaping communism in 1921 they moved here so we were an immigrant family in the household and my stepfather we were always eating spicy food and everybody else we we're in pennsylvania growing up lebanon pennsylvania big shout out to my baloney town <laughs> uh, but we we were the only ones with really spicy food so all my friends would come over and they'd be like man your mom's cooking again they'd have their fourth meal at my house you know uh, but my dad, I think what he did uh, is he saw in me this artist that could be floating in the clouds all the time, you know, never like coming down to earth. And my dad is a Taurus, had a uh, bachelor's degree in chemistry before anybody had like, you know, real college credits, uh, doctorate in chiropractic medicine. And he figured I got to whip this kid into shape. So he gave me like a day planner calendar before day planners existed. Wow. And I had chores to do. I was on a, a schedule all the time. And I have to thank him every single day because without him, I probably wouldn't have any of the discipline I have today to accomplish the goals I've achieved. Because my father, he had this mental toughness that comes from, and if you ask anybody, Hungarians have this, this sort of mental toughness that you don't see anywhere else. And uh, he really instilled in me uh, that get your ass up off the ground. Okay, you cried a little bit, you got hurt, get your ass up and get in the ring again. Um, and I've always used that, whether it was martial arts training or writing a book or it doesn't matter, starting a company, your, uh, your trajectory in life, you're going to hit a wall. I don't care who you are. Um, a lot of young guys are running around. They're going, yeah, I'm the shit, man. And it's like, give it time. Something's going to knock you in the back of the head and knock you on your ass. And now you have to get up that seventh time, as they say, that eighth time. You got to get back up. What is it going to take for you to get back up? And a lot of times it's ignoring what your mind is telling you. Because all of us have sort of in our, our brains an image of what we think we look like to the world. And for some of us, it's a facade. And inside, we're, you know, we, we hate ourselves or we put ourselves down. 
And this is the difference between arrogance and confidence. You're going to see it. So for those of you who are afraid to pat yourself on the back once in a while, arrogance is when you make some crap up about yourself that feeds your ego and you run around and you want everybody else to think it. Confidence is when you actually know what the hell you're doing and you want to learn more about what you know how to do. And you just walk in your room and you can say, hey, you know, I can look you in the eye and say, I'm a badass drummer. And I can say that with confidence. I've had the 10 to 20,000 hours of mastership, drumline, you know, marching band, all those things. I've done the martial arts training. I earned my black belt in Kempo Jiu-Jitsu. I got my ass handed to me many, many times in tournament and all that. I'm confident in what I can do. So for me, and if, if you're listening and you're unsure about what that is, stop listening to what everybody else is trying to tell you. Stop listening to them saying, oh, who do you think you are? Because sometimes those people are trying to keep you in place. Make a true assessment of what you're damn good at, what you're weak at and need to get better at, and start building those layers. Start building yourself. Make yourself an interesting person, at least, <laughs> uh, by you know going to the next level. That's it. Yeah, you know what I love about the way that you communicate, Brad, and I've always felt this way about you. Like winners, you know, there's someone in your life that's like maybe like an uncle or a cousin or like a family friend, and they just have sage wisdom. You know what I'm saying? Like they just have been around the block and they just speak with confidence. And there's really two people that remind me of what I'm describing, Brad. It's you and Tony Watley. Like shout yeah, out to Tony. Tony. Like I, I nicknamed him Yoda. Like yeah. he just spits like just facts. Like t Tony's been from corporate millionaire business owner. Like he just speaks, you know, with, with conviction and experience and wisdom and guys like find people like that in, in your life and just really shut the fuck up and, and listen, um, kind of just circle back and, and what you're saying as far as being a badass drummer. Um, I know you're a badass in general and I'm not just trying to stroke your ego. Like you got your black belt near 50. Yeah, like, let's let's talk about that. Like, I, I want to get yeah. to the part of the fact that you took a company public and the company was worth twenty six million dollars. <laughs> like, that's dope as uh, fuck. I don't know anyone else besides you there, but like, let's start with the cool shit first. Thanks, like, man. Uh, you know, I have to pinch myself sometimes because uh, when you're you're talking to me about certain things, I'm like, who are you talking about? You know, so, um, you know what it was. My mother died in two thousand six, and I wasn't depressed, but like a year later, I'm sitting there on the couch. Uh, 45, uh, my metabolism really shifted quickly all of a sudden and I was gaining weight and I was just like, uh, what am I going to do? I got to start doing something. And I hate going to the gym. I'm like most people, uh, okay, I'm lifting weights. <laughs> Look at me. You know, and you're looking around and every people are either in leotards yapping away, um, or, you know, they're struggling to, to get motivated. And, uh, my wife at the time, we're now divorced, but Norma and I were living with my in-laws and um, I helped raise her nephew. And so I took him to every single one of his belt tests. We drove him up to Boston to be in the tournaments. This kid, he ate the martial, ups, uh, martial arts up like you wouldn't believe. He just loved everything. And it was a particular uh, MMA style. Uh, it started out as Shaolin Kempo, which is Kung Fu and Kempo. Chinese and Japanese sort of martial arts coming together. And it was, it was um, originally created by a grandmaster uh, who spent like 17 years in China training and learning. And so my senseis, I knew all of them because I'd taken Sebastian, my nephew, to every one of his belt tests. And What's a sensei? 
sensei is your master teacher or your teacher and there's levels there's masters and there's professors now because of uh, mma and brazilian jiu-jitsu so you now have professors who are teaching not allowed to fight they're allowed to demonstrate um and so when I decided, hey, maybe uh, what am I going to do? My nephew says to me, Sebastian comes up and he goes, hey, Uncle Brad, why don't you take uh, you know, martial arts with me? He had just gotten his black belt at 16. Nice. Uh, yeah, and uh, I had taken to the test. I was really impressed. Everybody at that black belt test that he passed, um, they were in tears. They were, they were grown men crying because they, they were in pain, number one, because <laughs> uh, a black belt test is four to five hours sometimes, maybe more. Uh, and so I, um, he said, why don't you come sign up? I said, okay. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have a heart attack. I just went from the couch to the dojo. How old are you? At this I was 45. Okay. And I decided, you know what? Let me start taking cardio kickboxing. And for six weeks, I just three times a week, I got in there. And I was taking class with women, and the women were intimidating. They were beating the hell out of those bags. I was like, what the hell's going on? And if you've ever taken cardio kickboxing, you sweat like a pig. <laughs> I didn't know I could sweat like this. So I'm hitting the bag. And finally, after about six weeks, um, Charlie, we call him Charlie. He's our sensei, Master Raymond. He came up, and he goes, hey, you want to you start training? I said, I'd love to. He goes, you get two weeks for free. Uh, if you want to sign up, you know, you get your gi, and we'll get started. I think it was after the first week. I was getting thrown around, <laughs> slammed on the ground. I get up one day, I go, sign me up. And uh, yeah, I put on my, my white gi and I just started training three times a week. And we transformed from doing Shaolin uh, Kung Fu to just Kempo and then Jiu Jitsu. So Kempo, if you don't know what that is, um, that's kind of a nasty form of the martial art where we rip ears off, poke eyes, break arms, mm. wrists, uh, and multiple strikes. Like you palm, wrists, uh, hammer fists, things like that on areas where uh, it's Street painful. fighter combo. It's, it's, total, it's total like some street. Jason Bourne shit, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. If you look up Kempo, it's multiple strikes super fast that uh, actually make the, the opponent's uh, brain freak out. Like I've seen people like try to get away <laughs> in the, who, who have higher belts because Kempo is just nasty. Like one of our, my favorite moves is a hammer strike to the side of the jaw and um, scratch to the face, then a hammer back up into the nose. And then as you step out, you kick into the rib, you know, that's a na <laughs> And you do that like boom, boom, boom like that. And so Kempo is multi getting used to multiple strikes into very strategic zones you know, side of the neck, back of the head, things like that. And so you start to, yeah, I know the I know, guys, you thinking, guys are looking at me I'm like, I'm thinking what? of Jeff Ducharm. Shout out to Jeff, another OG. I put yeah. him in the same category as you and Tony, just like, you know, full of wisdom. And I remember him breaking this down to me. Yeah. Like, you know, as far as like literally being able to kill a person with just yeah. a couple strikes. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> Confidence. Uh, Confidence. My, uh, uh, yeah. And we'll get, I have two students right now. I'm actually teaching my girlfriend oh, and uh, a friend's son. We'll talk about that. Uh, the moment where my, my girlfriend just giggled with glee because now she can choke a grown ass man. <laughs> <laughs> I showed her a couple of, you know, anaconda chokes and things like that. She's a guillotine. She's like, oh my God, it's so easy. Technique, you know, it's all technique. Um, but we, uh, what had started to happen is uh, 
that first year I went through the the first three belts super fast, you know, so you go through it, you go from white to yellow to orange and then purple. And then uh, by the time you hit about blue, you get to wear black geese. So now you're, you're starting to learn the Looking system. like freaking Cobra Kai. Yeah. So we did 10 belt tests. Uh, I did 10 belt tests on my road uh, to getting my black belt. And uh, in our system at the time, now they're doing more BJJ kind of style. It's, it's victory martial arts on Long Island. That's where I trained. And um, excuse me, what's starting to happen is uh, each belt test uh, is grueling. Like, like you have to be in shape to do this kind of work. So belt tests would be like an hour, an hour and a half long, mm-hmm. and you'd be exhausted at the end. And one of the young senseis, he would exhaust us in 20 minutes. Like our cardio was like, off the wall. Then he made us lean against the wall and, and bend our knees and lay a uh, bow staff on your thighs. And if it rolls off, you have to do 25 push-ups. So, you know, stuff like that, punishment and pain and stuff. Um, but what started to happen is um, I really started to really enjoy the martial arts. I just really became a student of the martial arts and I was willing to lose a thousand times. And so they always say you have to you know, throw a thousand punches before you actually know how to punch. And the depth of the art is the most important to me uh, because I can throw a person to the ground hard or I can do it gently. So you take somebody very dramatically and you flip them hard and then you, you drop them like a baby on the mat and they look at you like, how did you do that? You know, that's depth of an art. So in the military, they don't teach so much the depth, it's kill or be killed. But if you really are a student of the martial art, you start to like really enjoy like those little subtle things. Like uh, my sensei showed me something once that sticks to me to this day. Uh, you grab a guy by the neck and he can just use his body weight up against you. And you, you try to push him back. You can't. But if you tilt your wrist just a little bit, he flies onto the floor. And this is the key to like technique. It doesn't matter how big or small you are. If you get that technique down, you can take a person down who's much bigger than you. And uh, I just I just loved the training. I loved it. Um, I have some funny, my favorite funny stories is uh, because of my nephew's schedule and my schedule, I always made it a point to take two classes during the week. So it was either Monday or Tuesday or Thursday. I would be in class taking jujitsu. And then on Saturday, I would make sure I got over there for the nine o'clock class. Well, the nine o'clock class um, is really great. But if you got there at the eight o'clock class, you would train with these older guys who got their black belts on hardwood floors and guys who went to Vietnam and shit. Okay. So we had one sensei there, Dave, uh, Dave, a shout out to Dave Forbes. This guy was great. He's in his, he was in his sixties at the time, but Dave, when he took over one of our other classes, cause our, our sensei would go away for the weekend or something, you felt like you were training in a Shallon monastery because he would make eight guys line up. We'd have 16 guys in class. So you'd make eight guys line up in one line, eight guys in another line. And one of the guys in each line had to turn around and fight each one as they would come at you one at a time, one strike, one combination. And you had to take that person down. If you didn't, he'd yell at you to do it over. And then we'd rotate until each guy in the line got trained. And so each person was, you're fighting each person, then you'd rotate, then you'd be fighting that person. And it was constantly rotating. So when you were done with that class, you felt like you were in a, you know, a Shaolin monastery yeah, getting trained. Gauntlet. Yeah, it was gauntlet. It was, um, what do they call it, shark tank kind of fighting. You can't get out until you win. Uh, uh, and so 
there was that. And then those nine o'clock classes on a Saturday morning, uh, or those eight o'clock classes with the, the older guys, um, some of these guys fought in Vietnam and stuff. So they, they would show you techniques. Like I, I threw a punch one day and this guy, Dave, it was actually Dave. He comes up, grabs my shoulder. And the next thing I know I'm on the ground. And I still, to this day, don't know how he did it, but it, they have these like sick um, old school, you know, the martial arts defense that you're just like, Oh my God. Like he, he was trained in, I believe tiger and snake and he comes up to me and he does all this ripping and all this. And the next thing I know I'm on the ground and I'm like, what in the hell was that? And it, it's like super secret stuff. They don't teach anymore till you used to get to the black belt level. Uh, so I was loved having class with those guys, you know, cause they would, dope. they didn't, they didn't want they didn't mess around. Um, and they were there to train. And uh, one of the guys there, his gi was so old, it looked like it had been tie-dyed. You know, it was just, I mean, Stained. trained, trained, trained. Um, so uh, to make a long story short, I trained uh, easily for five, five and a half years to get my black belt, 10 belt tests. I was in uh, brown belt for about two years. You get three degrees in the brown belt. My last brown belt test, my, one of my training partners called me up. I was at work and he goes, dude, you got to get in here. They're going to be doing the brown belt test, the final stripe. And I want you at the same level with me. Well, I had taken a little break for like a month and to get my cardio back up, I had to get in there for two weeks and train hard. And uh, my cardio wasn't that bad. But by the time we got into that class um, and we took that belt test, we were, you know, we do like military crawls and, and dragging people across the ground. You know, firemen's carry 40 feet back and forth with each other, kicking the bag just to warm up and go through combinations. And so, and we actually fight. So we'll hit at about 70% instead of like a black belt will hit, you hit pretty hard in a black belt, um, uh, you know, class. But uh, with this, you're about 60 to 70% you're striking. So you're holding back a little bit. Um, but all of a sudden we got a chance to rest and I, I go into, you know, attention stance and, uh, I thought I was going to pass out. I was so dizzy. I mean, we were like, so I locked my knees, you're not supposed to do that, but I locked my knees cause I thought I was going down. Uh, and later I found out my other two training partners, including the sensei's wife, um, they felt the same way. It was the hard, that was a hard test just before. Um, and so that one was hard. And then, um, I'll never forget this. This was, uh, in 2013, right around um, Thanksgiving, my sensei pulls me aside and he goes, hey, we're going to be doing the black belt exam in February. You want in? I said, hell yeah. And uh, from that moment on, uh, all the other guys who were black belts, they just said to me, he goes, cardio, cardio, cardio. You got to get your cardio up. So I worked on my technique, but I did double classes and I trained five days a week. So I do an hour 15 of jujitsu Kempo jiu-jitsu and that included some brazilian jiu-jitsu and then um i do a cardio kickboxing class double up double up five days a week just kept doing it and one of my buddies was going through a divorce at the time and i called him up and i said uh get your ass over here man i said they're going for black belt and so he only had a month to prepare but i pushed his ass and finally on that last day of the week of the black belt exam <clears throat> we're there on a tuesday night and uh my sensei could see we were really training hard. Um, and he says, I don't want to see you guys here until the belt, the belt test. Cause we were overtraining. He didn't want us overtrained. Um, and then my black belt exam was in February and, um, four hours, 
no breaks, just 30 seconds to get a sip of water, put on your pads and get back in. Uh, we did everything from uh, <laughs> lockdowns and uh, we did the cardio in the beginning was just off the chain because we had to do, uh, we had to pick up a heavy bag and jog in place with it, a full leather heavy bag, slam it to the ground, jump on it, do um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu on it, get back up, start doing push-ups on the bag, then pick it back up, jog in place, do that 10 times. And we did fireman's carry then, and then we were doing uh, combinations, kicking everything. And then uh, you get on pads and you're starting to do shark tank. Then we're doing some Muay Thai training. Then they want to see what you know. So you have to go through all 26 combinations for the black belt uh, exam. And you have to, and we do our combinations against an opponent. So we're not just, you know, striking in the air. We're attacking and fighting each other with full takedowns, you know, everything. And then, um, the final part of the exam, um, I had to fight eight people to get in a circle to get out. And when I was done, we were, he was just picking people at random. I volunteered because I go, if I don't do it now, I'm going to pass out. And I just did it, fought for like three minutes, stayed alive. <laughs> and then when I was done, I couldn't lift my arms. <laughs> so, so when you're saying I, I fought eight people, like I'm just picturing, you remember that scene in, in Rush Hour 2 where um, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker are like in the middle and they're at the massage parlor yeah. and all those Asian dudes like circle them. And he's like, you go this way, I go that way. He's like, I go this way, you go that way. And then, so, so Who you're, just kicked me? Who just kicked me? <laughs> yeah, it was exactly like that. So, sorry, Carter. All y'all look like. Uh, so is you're in the middle and there's literally eight dudes and yep. like you're Man like. Men and women. Okay. Some already have their black belt. They're going and, for and, the second. And they're like full on, like you, you're Coming full on fighting. What's up winners? I know you're getting a lot of value from the show. Pop over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review and tell a friend. Back to the show. 30 seconds into my black belt exam, uh, a young man who used to come to our house uh, to hang out with my nephew, um, he gave me a right hook to my temple. Uh, mm. 30 seconds in, I could have gone out. And he was 19, so he gave me full on. And I just shook my head like this. I go, oh, that's how we're playing this shit. And I went in and it just went at him. Um, but yeah, and then one of the other guys, he's already a sensei, he came at me and um, I just did the back of my palm we, you know, and you have full gloves on, so back of the palm on the bridge of his nose, and then I kicked just to keep everybody at bay. I was just like, because um, at that point you're just you're exhausted. Um, but I'm I'm not saying I'm like the greatest martial artist in the world. Um, I just got in there and did what I do best, and my sensei always helped me because. <laughs> Uh, like I, we were talking before, uh, I have short legs, you know, I have a 30 inch inseam, so I ain't doing the triangle choke on some guys, you know, it's, it ain't happening. Um, but I learned scissor choke and I learned lockdown and I learned, you know, my father being a chiropractor, I knew all the pressure points in the body. So as soon as somebody's trying to choke me, I dig my thumb into the rib cage, you know, or little things like that, or you can paralyze somebody temporarily if you drive your your thumbs into a, a certain pressure point or things like that. So I already had that as part of my arsenal. But when you train in the martial arts, you just pick your your five moves that you can do really, really well, and you do them. Yeah, master uh, a few. Yeah, because uh, I am not the guy who's going to kick you in the head. Just <laughs> you know, I'm only five eight. Yeah, uh, hello. <laughs> But, you know, I've got, you know, a couple, like my cousin, uh, Alex, he's been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I got a buddy named Miguel. He fights out here in Vegas. And, yeah. and I've always wondered, you know, when you're on the mat, get rolling around, maybe you're getting your ass kicked, maybe you're kicking some ass. You know, what do you think is the, the biggest thing? Because to me, 
you know, take two steps back. When I look at these guys and look at you who do martial arts, I'm thinking discipline. You know, that's the biggest overarching thing, yeah. you know, that I feel like that really strengthens over that to that course of period. What do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned while rolling around, maybe getting your ass kicked a bit? Like what comes to mind, you know, in those in those seconds and how do you do it? You know, how do you take action afterwards? Because I feel like right. a lot of entrepreneurs, we get those good ideas in the gym or walking on the treadmill, some fire comes to mind. Yeah. But I see, I feel like, Brad, you're a person that not only gets those ideas, but you're also taking action with yeah. them afterwards. How has that played a role? Well, uh, we talked about me being a drummer earlier. I was a jazz drummer as, as well mm-hmm. as a rock drummer. And in jazz drumming, if you're around other great musicians, you have to bring your A game. So you're playing really, really well. Okay. BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's the opposite. So if you fight a really great, great BJJ practitioner, you're just trying to survive and not get choked out and, you know, lose your breath while you're on the mat. Uh, Get off me. You know, you're trying not to tap out. You're just, you're surviving. But once you start to sit back and you learn a really good move or a simple move, you have to practice that on somebody else who's lesser than you. So they can actually, you know, they're fighting for their life too, but it's the only art form where you to get and master certain things, you actually have to train with somebody who's lesser than you in that. Because if you're training against, you know, you're with your, your, your sensei or your master, they're going to let you win. They're going to take you through some of that. And then they're going to counter choke you. You know, they're going to show you the counter move always. And so I always laughed at my sensei, like he would just destroy me two, three times. But that fourth time he'd let me get in and do my work. And with BJJ, it's just, it's one of the most fascinating things. Like, like my favorite move is a lockdown and a lockdown is when your, your opponent is on top of you and you take their right leg and you lock it, you interlock it with both your legs. Okay. So you interlock their kneecap and you lock your ankle behind your kneecap and then you interlace your ankle with their ankle and you stretch out. It's painful as hell but it gives me a chance to work. They can't move when that thing is on. And then slowly I go for their other ankle and I pull it up over my head and that's an electric chair right there. And then I can sit back and they're doing a split. And guys, they tap immediately. On girls, they never tap because they can do a split. (laughs) So, So, but I had to learn that while panicking. That took like a year or two just to be able to survive in the ring while somebody's just, you know, they can ground and pound you if you don't know one move after the next. It's like a puzzle piece. You're working on, if he moves this way, I move that way. If he does this, I do that. If he goes for this choke, this is how you get out of that choke. Um, if he's going for an arm bar, um, what do you do? You know, there's several ways out of an arm bar. You can stack him or you can lay back down and do um, a spin out move, which is called the um, Statue of Liberty. You know, you keep your arm up and you, you spin around. And so those you get to practice on a lesser opponent, but when you finally have to face somebody who is skilled, you'll, you'll see that your skill level has come up. And so that's how you get good. You have to be able to, you know, work with an opponent that can, can back and forth with you. It has to be good back. It's a lesson in there. You know, it's almost like to, for you to really master, you have to teach it in a sense, you know, you have to be that teacher to that lesser person and you can apply that, and almost any skill set, you know, across the board, sales, you know, leadership, you have to be that person. Are you willing to be a white belt? You know, that that's always 
the the thing that we always talk about. Um, you should always be a white belt mm. when you're training. What do you think that means? To me, that is, um, although I have a black belt, if somebody has a technique and they knock me on my ass, I go, you know, because having a black belt doesn't mean that now I can suddenly kick everybody's ass. What a black belt means is I've done the full curriculum. Let's say I got all the degrees. I got trained to be a surgeon. Now I got to go to a hospital and learn from better surgeons who've been doing it longer. That's really what a black belt is. You've done all the training to get you to that level to stand in the arena with other people. Now you can train. Now you can learn. And so you should always have that. The ego should always be in check. And you just go, I'm a white belt. Always a white belt. I'm here to learn. And this is the same in sales. This is in this, it's the same in entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of older entrepreneurs are struggling right now because a lot of you younger guys, you're using and leveraging technology at a level that they may not even know it exists. So are you going to enter a room and look at a younger person and just say, what do you know, kid? You can't do that anymore. You can't even come close to that because that young person may have already, you know, created several multi-million dollar businesses. Uh, and I learned this from the martial arts. Martial arts saved my life, really. Um, I'm almost 60 now. And I got to tell you, uh, it put me in the best shape of my life. I still train a little bit to this day. I teach. Um, but the reality is it, it helped me maintain my health. It helps me keep my youthful vigor. But it also trained me to shut the hell up and listen to the masters. Shut the hell up and listen to your sensei. Um, shut the hell up and just enter the ring and, and learn from your opponent. Whenever I see somebody disrespect, you know, I watch the UFC fights. Whenever it's, I see them disrespect the other opponent, I say, you can't do that. That person has earned the right to be in the ring with you, alongside of you. They've done different things to get there, just as you did different things to get there as well. And so you have to honor the people you're working with and honor your opponents and honor, you know, your nemesis in business. Everybody has a nemesis in business. Um, honor the fact that they earned the right to be in the ring with you at the same level. Yeah. Yeah. What I took from what you were just saying, as far as performing <clears throat> under stress, right? Like oh, you're getting yeah. choked the fuck out. You're sweating. <laughs> you're losing. He's sweating on you. You're already thinking about like, damn, what am I going to eat for dinner after I go home? Like, and then, like you said, it's a, like, it's a, a puzzle, right? You're figuring out, okay, how do I get out of this? But then I kind of relate and I could be wrong, but like, when I went scuba diving for the first time and I had all the shit on top of me and I actually went underwater with the, the t oxygen tank and the weights and shit. When I went down for the first time, I freaked the fuck out Yeah, because oh, I, yeah. My, my body was like, I couldn't breathe with my mouth. Like I had to come back up. I was just under duress. And then I was like, okay, let me just take, let me just take a chill pill. Like, let me just relax. And I think that's, that's what you had to do. But then what all of us still have to do, right? Like, right. Well, the first time you, I'll use uh, the, the joke that everybody gets trained in, and that's the rear naked choke hold. Okay. The first time that's happening to you, you panic and you're like, whoa, whoa, what the? And you start tapping. But over about a year of training, you learn not to panic in that moment. You learn to think. Uh, we call it uh, going to work. You know, you start to, as the person does this move, okay, time to go to work. Okay, what do I do? Grab the, you know, the forearm, hold it down, tuck, tuck in tight. Okay try to wiggle my ass out from his hooks that are in, you know, get shimmy that out. Once I get that out and turn around and get in his face, then I can start to stack him a little bit or get on top or come into guard. Um, so 
what that does, it trains you not to panic. And it's the same in business, man. If, if you don't have mentors around you that you can call up and say, hey, I'm going through some shit right now. Um, like you were talking about Jeff Ducharme. Uh, I can call Jeff at one o'clock in the morning and he'll pick up. You know, he has, he's been not just an extraordinary friend, but we bond over the martial arts and everything else. Um, but he's one of those people who upped his game. And I noticed it right away. I said, dude, what have you been doing? Because some people... You know, they, they'll up their game. Uh, and I have to be honest, I'm going I'm to level with you guys. In all the years of all the things I've accomplished and all the, the crap you read on my, my bio, I think one person in all these years has come up to me and said, hey, could you teach me how you did all that? And I find that astounding, you know, because there's certain things you should have on your resume. They never come off your resume. I took a company public once, okay? That's on my resume. Uh, going to the moon, getting a gold medal. <laughs> you know, there's certain things you have to really go and look back through your life and say, hey, maybe I'm discrediting some of the accomplishments I have done even when I was younger. Um, you know, being an Eagle Scout should be always on your resume. doesn't matter how old you are. You're an Eagle Scout. That's a hell of an accomplishment. Um, I think we, we kind of devalue you know, that we got this award over here as a, a real estate agent or we were the top salesperson at this place or we helped build a multi-million dollar company from the ground up. Start looking at your resume and your accomplishments a little differently. They are feathers in your cap and they should have value on the stage of your life uh, even though they were 20 years ago. Yeah, going back, you know, decades when you took the company public, like what went on in your head that day? Like emotionally, what were you thinking? How were you feeling when you found out that your, your company went public? Well, let's go back a little bit because <laughs> for those of you listening, I come from a very small town and uh, I know what it's like to get cows off the highway. Okay, let's put it that way. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in a great time, you know, in the 70s in Pennsylvania. Uh, learned to shoot a gun, learned to fish, learned to hunt. I was a scout. And so for me to become an executive of a publicly traded company is almost like so outside of the realm of how I ra was raised or even could consider, it's almost like you're telling me I went to the moon. You know? And I, I still look back and pinch myself to this day because um, what happened was I was always an entrepreneur. I started my first business in like 1979. And I did that because my father made it so hard to hand me a $20 bill that it was easier to start a business. Okay. So that'll tell you how my dad was. What the hell? You're well, just I keep asking and go make yeah, it yourself. Yeah. It's like, dad, you know, and, uh, can I have a $20 bill? And it was like, what the hell do you need that for? You know, so it was just, I'll give you an idea of how my dad was. My father, when he uh, found out that they were tearing down all these buildings behind our house, to pave the parking lot for the, the hospital that was coming in that they were building. They tore down these five-story red brick buildings, okay, Victorian-era style buildings. My dad got the Studebaker on a Sunday night as the sun was going down, loaded up the back of the Studebaker, which could hold some serious weight, and he drove it back up the hill very slowly because the wheel wells were rubbing against the inside of the car. He had probably 2,000 pounds of bricks in the back of the car. So he parks a car right in front of the house. 
opens the gate the next morning and I'm 10 years old and he goes, Hey, I want you to carry all those bricks and stack them in the back of the yard. So here I am, 10 years old, carrying two bricks at a time, stacking two bricks at a brick time. Brick by brick. By brick. By brick. By brick. <laughs> you got it. So here was this about 15 foot long, uh, two and a half foot high, maybe um, uh, two feet wide stack of bricks at the end of the walkway in our house. And typical of my father... Those bricks stayed there for years. <laughs> okay, so I'm pass like, up on these free bricks, right? So well, he goes, they don't make bricks like that anymore. You know, oh, I mean, literally. No, my, he didn't. no, my dad was born in 1931. Trust me. So I'm like, Dad, you know, I'm just like, what the hell? You know, I carried these bricks. I was exhausted at the end of the day, and I was actually angry because it would have gone faster if I could just carry four bricks, and it was just too much at ten. So uh, I think two or three years goes by and my mother goes, God damn it, Mike, <laughs> what are you going to do something with those bricks out there? You know, and he goes, ah, you know, I'll get to it. So finally, my dad just couldn't take it anymore. My mother's bitching about these bricks because they were an eyesore. <laughs> so he decided he was going to take all the, the gardens along the edge of the, the, the backyard and he lined them with those angled bricks, you know, and then he built a beautiful patio 30 by 30 out, out back. You know, my parents like to sit out and watch the sunset at, at night and watch the stars come out. And my dad would, um, you know, mix some drinks for my mom. She liked the Tom Collins or gin and tonic, you know. So they would sit out there and get a little schnockered, as they used to say. So we're out there right after my dad finishes the patio, and we grilled some steaks, and we were just so happy. And uh, my mom wanted to go to Disneyland with me or Disney World to fly down. I've never been in an airplane until, you know, I was 21. But as a kid, my mom was like, we're going to do a family vacation we're going to fly to Disney World, and we're going to just have fun. So my dad's sitting there, and this is how cheap he is. Uh, my mom goes, let's go to Disney World this year, and blah, 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 blah. My dad literally looks up pissed. He goes, what the hell's wrong with the backyard? I just fixed it up so we could enjoy it. <laughs> and it's like, and my mom's like, what? I thought we were on candid camera because my father is just like, what the hell is wrong? You got your Disney World right here. Look here. You got that. You know, and he's like pointing out all these things. He goes, you got a tree you can climb. Hell, you could build a tree house up there. You know, this is how cheap my dad was because we only took one family vacation in my whole upbringing. We went up to Canada and back. So, this will tell you how cheap and rough it was for my dad, you know, and me. I was just frustrated. Like, like I had no brand new furniture in my bedroom. I had my dad's woodshop projects while, while Hitler was dropping bombs on Europe. My dad was building these woodshop pieces, and they became my furniture during the Carter administration. Okay? Lovely. So this, you get a picture of how my dad is. So I grew up. Went to college for art and design. I became a designer in New York City. I specialized in doing these big, high-level meetings for big corporations. And this is back when we did slides. And so one of my buddies who I went to college with wound up in New York City too, Doug Cleek. So Doug, after about 10 years of being in New York, Doug says to me, this is uh, 1992, right around Christmas time. He goes, hey, I want to start a company with you. And I had just gotten out of a business partnership that was sticky and messy. And I was like, I don't really want to be in a partnership with anybody right now, Doug. And he goes, well, why not? And I said, look, and I explained to him my whole situation. I said, if you can make a list of three to five things, real reasons, maybe I'll consider it. 
Well, he came back a week later with like 50 things. And I was like, you had me at hello. (laughs) Um, I was flattered. I said, okay, let's do this. So right around February, um, we decided, uh, you know, from January into February, we started to lay down the bricks of how we were going to start this company. First, it was going to be a design firm doing graphic design for, you know, large scale stuff from annual reports and print and collateral to banking, you name it. And then I would do the meeting side of all this. And so we, we had that all laid out, but one night we're just sitting there and we made a list of the pretentious, the most pretentious, stupid ass names you could ever think of, you know, because it was the yuppie era. So it was like Bradley Douglas associates, crap like that. And we had, you know, cool names, cool words, matrix, you know, we had all kinds of stuff. So we're about to leave. He's about to head home and uh, I'm seeing him out of, uh, of my living room and he and I had gone hiking together and we going skiing together. So I had a picture um, on the wall of uh, him standing on a, a mountain peak that I had taken, had taken this great picture. And then the skis were in the corner. You know, I had my ski because it was the middle of winter. So I was farting around with those. And uh, I said, hey, you know, think about these these names and uh who knows maybe we want to call it and i pointed at the skis in the corner i go uh, k2 you know maybe we're gonna, and we looked at each other and we were just like oh my god that's the name and we just called a k2 design because it was named after the highest the second highest peak on planet earth is k2 the karakoram region of the himalayas and so there's mount everest which a lot of people climb but k2 is the most dangerous and so we thought, you know, this mountain is a metaphor for what we're going to do. So we started K2 in February of 1993. And the first year we struggled like hell until one day he comes in and he says to me, hey, we got to become an internet company. Remember, it's 94 and, and around that time. So I looked at him and I said, what the hell's the internet? <laughs> and you know, a lot of people didn't know what it was back then. We had no idea. It was either email or whatever. So we just started, we sent out a postcard. And the postcard said, click here to get on the World Wide Web. You remember we used to call it that? <laughs> it's formal. The, the information superhighway, you know, that kind of <laughs> stupid stuff. We look back now and we laugh, you know, but that's what we called it. And so uh, we sent that postcard out. We got a mailing list and we sent it out. And if you know anything about direct mail, uh, you usually get a 4% as a good return. Okay, we got an 11% return on our, on our mailing list. And surprise, surprise, somebody came up from downstairs and knocked on the door. They had a server farm right below us. We didn't even know. Hell, we didn't know what a server farm was back then. So we started doing their work for their uh, uh, subscription-based model for Sierra Magazine online. Oh, wow. And then... This guy, um, this girl across the hall, she would smoke cigarettes and stick her head in and go, what are you guys doing here? You know, back when you could smoke in New York City. And uh, we said, well, we, we do graphical user interfaces. She goes, you got to meet my uh, fiance. We're getting married in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, you, get, you just got to meet him. And he would love to see what you're doing. So this guy shows up one Saturday, David, her husband, and he walks in, he sits down, he watches us working. And... Um, we're in a tiny office, no bigger than this, with two Mac, two CIs, and uh, we built our, our whole office, uh, and we had one plug in the wall for everything. <laughs> uh, and uh, this was at 11th and Broadway in Manhattan. And so uh, David is sitting there, and he goes, I could sell this. 
And we were making fun of Dr. Evil at the beginning, but I literally looked at David and I said, all right, Dave, if you can sell $1 million, you know, Dr. Evil, of uh, internet, I will not only make you a business partner, I, I will you know, put you in charge of sales and make you the CEO. And I was actually kind of doing it tongue in cheek, like, yeah, we'll see what happens. Because back then you could barely get $300 to do an interface or any of these things. So I was, I was kind of being jokey about it. Well, David broke every rule I had ever known about sales, broke every rule. He went to the Wharton School of Business and his major was entrepreneurial financing for startups. So he would work the phones back when cold calling was a thing. And we only had uh, 36K modems at that time, okay? And there was no Wi-Fi. And David sold the first website that we built, which was 1-800-DIAL-A-MATTRESS. Remember that? <laughs> and we did the interface, and it was just gray, on gray background, 64-bit color. Wow. But in that first year, David sold, uh, what was it, $1.4 million worth of internet, services, graphical user interface, following year 4.3 million, and the year of that 6.3 million. And we eventually, uh, within 18 months of David being on board, we went public on NASDAQ. And this was kind of, uh, this was an amazing story because I didn't even know what going public was. I didn't know what an IPO was. I learned through the, you know, test of fire. So David, after he had his wedding, there were some relatives there, and this was a friend of a friend, this guy, um, uh, Harvey, and he came by and he looked at our office one day and all Harvey ever did, Harvey Berlin, all he did was take companies public. This is how he became a multimillionaire. Uh, I went to his house out in New Jersey and he had what they call tombstones. This is clear lucite uh, piece that you get of the ad that you put in the newspaper when you take your company public. He had a wall of those. Damn. I mean, we're talking 30 Okay. So this guy was legit. Yeah, totally legit. So he walks around our office and um, you would think, you know, somebody like, like him would be, you know, really stuck up and he wasn't, he was like a tennis player. He drove poor, he raced Porsches, you know, he was cool as hell. And so he walks around and he goes, Hey, would you guys like to go public? And I said, we were like, Dave's like, yeah, we would love to do that. So we met with this company that wanted to take us public. They weren't sure about us. So they were doing the smell test. We sat in a four-hour meeting in one of the most crowded freaking conference rooms that I've ever been in. It wasn't much bigger than this, and there were probably 12 of us in here. Can you imagine? Stuffy. How? Yeah, yeah I imagine someone just farting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hot. Somebody got that coffee breath in there. Yeah. You know? What's up, winners? I know you're getting a lot of value from the show. Pop over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and tell a friend. Back to the show. So I'm a jokester, so I'm trying to, play both roles, you know, business, but, you know, keeping the tension uh, from whatever. And uh, we go to leave the meeting and Harvey's walking with us and uh, he goes, so who do you think owned the company? And all my business partners were going, oh, that guy, he was so sharp and profound and blah, blah, blah. And I said, this guy in the corner. And he goes, Brad's correct. And he goes, why do you think that? I said, he didn't say a damn thing for four hours. I said, that's the guy who holds the rod of power in this organization. He goes, yeah. So I think it was about three, four days later, we got a phone call. They wanted to take us public, and we had another meeting. They said, well, what do you want? And um, we said, well, we would, uh, we'll need a million dollars. 
I go, done. <laughs> was even all? like a thought. Million dollars because we needed to expand, move into a Rudin building down in um, 55 Broad Street, which became the technology center of New York City. Um, they said, uh, we have a timeline of six months. And so from that moment on, we got our million dollars, we expanded, we got more employees, but they needed me to step down from my duties, my day-to-day duties to basically design the new space. Cause I was the only business partner who could read blueprints. I wanted to be, um, an architect when I was younger. So I took drafting and all that. My math sucked. So there was that. There was that dream. Today, <laughs> today you don't have to worry about that. So I'm reading blueprints and I'm doing all this stuff. And here's the crazy part about New York. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret here in our, this part of our show. Um, Nobody wanted to get paid. You know, we owed vendors money and, you know, we were doing work. And the guy, they held back building our space. I mean, we're like two, three weeks away from moving in. And our space isn't done yet. And I had patch panels put in the wall. I wanted, I had it all laid out. The architect was ready to go. The guy comes up to me. He's clearly uh, with the union. That's code for something else. But he (laughs) said, hey, uh, I don't want to be paid. I want stock. They want stock. I said, that's illegal. I can't do that. And they just, everybody was doing this. All our vendors were asking for stock. Everybody wanted stock. Nobody wanted a check to pay off their bill. (laughs) They wanted stock. I said, can't do it. It's illegal. And so we worked it out, but I gave them $10,000 cash or in a cashier's check. That little mother, that office was done in two weeks. (laughs) <laughs> held you hostage <laughs> yeah they held me hostage so i learned how to work with unions in new york city and by the way i'm pro union just don't just don't get me by the you know what the huevos <laughs> strong i yeah. was pissed but um you asked about going public so all this chaos is going on we only were able to draw like four hundred dollars uh every six weeks or so for a long time we paid our employees first we took care of our employees and all of a sudden, we went from 15 to 20 employees. With that million dollar, we expanded to 55 employees right off the bat. Uh, we were able to get salaries now like 120 grand a year, plus our own stock portfolio. Um, and I'll never forget this. This was uh, July 26, 1996. We went over to Harry's of Hanover Square. We all got a shot of scotch on the rocks, and we waited for our ticker symbol to come up on NASDAQ. KTWO. And when we came up, we had cheers, gentlemen. We took a sip. Uh, We hung out for maybe 15 minutes and then we went back to work, finished our drinks. That weekend, we took our wives out to dinner, very fancy dinner with a limousine that took us all, picked us up and um, went to the top of the sixes in New York City. And then we went to the Plaza Hotel to one of the bars in the very back and smoked some cigars and just took that all in and appreciated that because if you don't, I mean, we were working 95 hour weeks and if you don't take a break, man, you can have a nervous breakdown. So taking that break, celebrating a little bit and then looking and just going, I can't freaking believe we just created something out of scratch like this. That is, you know, I, I was able to give 60 employees. um, They were able to get their first mortgage, have their first babies. Um, They were able to move, you know, from India or Jamaica to be here in the U.S. They could move their families. You know, I was very proud of the, the our workforce. And we had workforce from all over the world um, because we needed people who, you know, from India, we had people who were programming. We had uh, programmers from Russia because we did the Gary Kasparov chess challenge. 
the deep blue chess challenge. Mm. So we hired uh, programmers from Russia and they would snap at attention when the boss came in the room. You know, the first time that happened, I was like, what the hell? And um, one of the guys who was Americanized, but he was, he was, you know, grew up in Russia. He goes, Brad, in the Soviet Union, if uh, you don't salute your boss and stand at attention, um, they kill your family. Uh, light your house on fire, and that's pretty much it. He would take a drag of a cigarette. He loved Marlboros and leather jackets. He goes, oh, I am not joking. You know, Nikolai. Oh, God. Nikolai, he'd just go, yeah. And I always tell this in my keynote uh, addresses. I go, aren't we lucky we live in a country where you don't have to worry about getting shot by your boss? Um, but yeah, we had, uh, I had one young man, he was from Jamaica, uh, and he came to our office. And if you got interviewed by the, the us, you had gone through two rounds with the team you were going to work with. We made the teams hire their people. So he sat there and after everybody left, he leans forward and he goes, I don't know how to design a website. And I leaned, I knew he was scared. And I leaned in and I said, nobody does. We're making this up as we go. <laughs> I said, you got hired. Obviously you have something, you have talent. I said, just listen to the other art directors in there, start working with the programmers. They'll teach you how. And he's one of the top people, uh, designers today for, you know, web development and things like that. Yeah. So we, we took care of our people. We just loved everybody that we worked for, uh, and worked with cause we felt we were only as good as how well we took care of our employees because they represent us, man. You know? So it sounds like culture was a big part of why of K2 success. Yeah. If you guys didn't take care of your employees, make sure their salaries were paid first before you guys got to yes. distributions. We Always. might not have heard of fucking K2 on, on, on the NASDAQ. Right. Probably not, but we were in all the newspapers. I mean, I was, I was featured in advertising age in 1994, 95 and around there. Uh, had my picture in advertising age. We were in Cranes uh, Brand Week. Um, uh, we were listed in the Wall Street Journal. Talked about, uh, yeah, we were one of those companies, and we were kind of called the the Fab Four of the Internet uh, because it became me, Doug Cleek, David Setner, and Matt DeGannon, all business partners, and we were in all kinds of magazines. I mean, I'm, I have them at my house. Some of them are framed. Uh, I got interviewed for the the equivalent of the New York Times over in France. Um, you know, that was a pretty big deal. A half page with my face on it. Wow. That was a little humbling. It was like, <laughs> holy crap, this is real. Um, you know, so the, it was like the wild, wild west at the time. So um, once the company got to a certain size, we realized as business owners, um, we can't create the culture at this point. It's up to them. So we did something unique. When it came to our, uh, you know, that employee orientation, we'd have three or four employees at the, you know, new new employee orientation. And me and David walk in, or a partner, any partner, if we came to that orientation, they were like, oh my God, I saw you in the New York Times or whatever. Um, so they, they were really touched by the fact that the owner took the time out to sit with them. And we always had the same speech. We said, you know, we built a playground for you. This is your company now. It's not ours. Our name might be on this and all that, but you're in charge now of creating greatness here. And if you have an idea or a division or a piece of software you think should be built or created, pitch it to us and we'll put money behind it. So we would always tell them that. And then the second thing we did is we would hand out a copy of The Pursuit of Wow by Tom Peters. 
And it basically was laying down what these uh, companies were doing, these little things they were doing to be great. And we, we encouraged everybody, you, this is your company now. It's not ours. So greatness, we don't want to hear you bitch, pissing and moaning about something. If you're going to bitch, piss and moan about something, bring a solution to the table. So we created four divisions at K2 that were from employees making suggestions. And those four divisions, one of them we sold with stock option to this other company. Uh, and so it was, you know, we're, we're talking, <clears throat> we expanded 425% for five straight years with 6% attrition rate. Yeah. And it's because we gave such a contagious work environment. Nobody, we had employees who they would come up to me and they go, I was late at every company I ever worked for except here. And they're in at eight 30. You know, they, they loved the work environment and that's what we, we wanted to create. And we had uh, one year we had finished every, all these projects. I mean, it was crazy. And we had, created a um, ski trip for all the employees. We rented the buses, you know, we leased the buses, two buses. Um, you paid for, you know, your hotel room or whatever, and we paid for the rest. So, you know, lift tickets, um, you know, nights out on the town, the first night in town. And we took everybody up to Stratton, uh, which is a big ski, you know, resort in, uh, on the East coast. But um, because of what we did, we didn't even know we were doing something innovative. And, uh, you know, we didn't know we were doing anything innovative until we got the Arthur Anderson Award for, uh, it's an enterprise award for um, fostering innovation amongst our employees. Mm. So it was for our workforce culture. They, the Arthur Anderson was our accounting firm and they came to us and they said, um, you guys have off the chart scores like we have never seen. And we were like, what? 98% employee satisfaction. We've never seen that. Like, oh, shit, snap. You know, what are we doing different? And we were taking MIT programmers and graphic designers and putting them in a pit and just go, have fun, create. You know, we did like Toys R Us. We did all the gaming areas in AOL at the time. You know, we, we sat with, you know, Steve Case. We, we've sat with these guys at the very top. Audi, we did their Netrider piece. We won Casey Awards for all this stuff. So... You know, anybody who's an entrepreneur out there and you're listening to this, you know, pay attention to the journey, man, because all I can say is I have some of the best stories from just listening to the crap that went on and the things we had to overcome. And, uh, you know, we, we bootstrapped. We didn't have financing until that million dollars came in. So everything was, we got to wait for a check. Imagine having to pay all your employees while you're waiting for a $150,000 check from IBM and they wouldn't pay you for six months. That's the kind of crap that we're going. I would literally get a check in the mail on a Friday and I'd be sitting there with, with, uh, you know, my 80 ADP, uh, you know, checks ready to ha hand them out. And I don't have money in the bank and the check from IBM finally arrives. I run it to the bank, deposit it, come back and then hand out the checks. That's some serious stress. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've had to fire employees, you know, because they, they weren't right for the culture, just simply were not fitting into the culture. Um, once you rode with the K2 brand, you didn't want to work anywhere else. Yeah. I have employees to this day that have parties, you know, K2 parties. I didn't know that. 
I was like, holy crap, we created something historical. You know, we're in a couple of, of books about the history of the dot-com boom, but. That's dope. I feel like the culture there of entrepreneurship is what you really fostered at K2, you know, where you said, you've got the keys to the Ferrari. Yeah. Do what you want with it. And it allowed for them to, you know, create these great ideas that take you to a public company that grows 400% year over year consistently yeah. without having to lose all the top talent that you've, you've cultured oh, yeah. and, and fostered. So, you know, for the winners out there, you know, empower the people that you're working with, you know, exactly. don't just let them be just employees is what I took from this. You, you have to give them ownership rights. Like they have to realize that if they stand up and they tell the truth, um, they're not going to get smacked down for it. Instead, you're going to go, damn, we could create something from that, that you just, you know, pointed out that we screwed up. Um, I think it's uh, Jeffrey Gittimer says he gives a hundred dollar bonus to anybody who makes a mistake. And they can use that mistake to create a better product. He says, now, if you do it twice, I might fire your ass. He said, but <laughs> once in a while, yeah. But uh, I, I, you know, I just, it's really about talent and people. And sometimes I would find somebody who on their resume, it said they, they want to do this, but their talent wasn't there. It was over there. And being able to go, hey, we're going to give you the resources to move over there because your personality, your training, the way you like to work is not really conducive to where you have your degree in. So we'd give everybody a shot at whatever they wanted to be or do. Um, we had one employee, Penny. Penny came through a, a couple of friends of mine. They, she was a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. So Penny was British and she... Um, you know, she, she wasn't, she didn't go to college or have a bunch of degrees or anything. She was just wanted to do her job. So we had her be our office manager slash, um, answered the phone. She was our all around secretary to get everything done. <clears throat> and Penny was just, her voice was so great. Hello and welcome. You know, she had the great British voice. So I made her do all the voiceovers on our phone system and it immediately made us sound international. Okay. So me and Dave one day were like, hey, we got to make her office manager. We're going to bump her up. And we, this, is, this is where you have your, your unbiased or your biased sense bitch slap you in the face, you know, which we deserved at the time. So we walked in and we we're like, Penny, would you like to be the office manager? You know, which was usually a position held by a woman at that time. And it was usually the person that knew all the systems in the office. And she's like, She's working on a computer and she didn't even look up. She goes, nah, what else you got? <laughs> and Dave and I just looked at just like, oh, homina, homina, homina. Like, oh, you idiots. It was never, I've never been more embarrassed in my life that I wasn't prepared or I assumed that another person would just see this as a gold. And it wasn't, it was led to her. So he said, David finally goes like this and he turns around and he goes, um, well, we need somebody to be trained in Perl script and C++ and Cisco Pro systems and all these other stuff. She goes, I'll take that. And for the next three years, we threw money at her training. She, was, she got trained in Perl script, C++. She was a whiz at HTML. She also went over and became Cisco Pro certified. So she would get this $25,000 bonus at the end of the year. Um, she learned how to do installs. And at the end of the day, she ran our tech department. She was telling MIT grads what to do. 
Then she went on to Ogilvy and she became their IT security person. Penny was a, a, a powerhouse. She's one of my favorite stories because, you know, we were kind of assholes, you know, assuming that this is what this person wanted for their career. And she flew with everything we threw at her, man. You find an employee like that. Like I've seen people pass over an employee because they had a tattoo on their neck. And then I find out somebody got a hold of that person and they are making $150,000 a year running their business because they found that person was hungry. Didn't matter that they had the tattoos on their neck. They went through some crap when they were younger and they made a mistake putting a tattoo and went through hell. Um, but now somebody saw something in them, a talent in them, and they gave them this, this just the support to go to the next level. You will be shocked at what people will do when they're given that chance. They will fly, baby. They will. Man, shout out to Penny. Yeah. yeah shout out to Penny. <laughs> Penny if the she's powerhouse. Listening. Yeah. Penny um, kicks ass and takes names. She knows a lot in the IT space. Man, I, w- I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, you know, when you were – making all these changes and uh you know going from a kind of small company in a small office with not a lot of finance to injection of a bunch of money and you know i'm sure there was a lot of hiccups and mistakes along the way trying to figure shit out what um i mean so respect for really being able to to make all of that happen i mean that's that's freaking amazing the end result like what what ended up happening to to k2 k2 actually got bought out when the dot-com bubble kind of burst uh you know i couldn't take it anymore uh, in 98 i stepped down the end of 97 into 98 i was i had been working 95 hour work weeks for like five straight years i was fried i was really burnt out i actually went to a naturopathic doctor and um he's a good he's a good friend of mine god bless me he passed away many years ago um but he was from east africa and he had studied to be a surgeon and he realized you can't heal the body this way and he became a master herbalist and acupuncturist and all this. So I go to him after two weeks of training in the gym and I'm not getting back in shape. I'm going, what the hell's going on? I'm not even 40 yet. And I was failing, you know, I, I couldn't lift 35 pounds in my left arm after two weeks of pushing and pushing. So I finally go to him. I go, what the hell's going on? His name was Iran Josan, big, tall, uh, sixth degree black belt in jujitsu, uh, tough as nails, but gentle soul. Had this big Fu Manchu mustache, shaved head. And he goes, after he examined me and he double checked everything, he goes, I have good news and I have bad news, my friend. And I go, what is it? He goes, he goes, what do you want first? I go, give me the bad news. I always want the bad news first. He goes, you have the internal organs of an 86 year old man. Wow. And he goes, it's all from stress. 95-hour work weeks, all from stress. Biting your nails every day, waking up at the crack of dawn, getting on that the ferry from Staten Island to my office, um, going back home late nights, shitty diet, you name it. I said, so what's the good news? He goes, because he goes, that's why you can't lift weights. You're, you're, you're aiming for a heart attack. I said, well, so what's the good news? He goes, I can reverse it, all of it. And he did. I got back to probably internally like a 26-year-old, even though I was pushing 40. Um, Brought me back to life through acupuncture, herbs that were at a a whole other level, not what you you get. These are like Chinese herbs that have been mixed and everything. Acupuncture, um, 
didn't have to do any flushes. I mean, I'm big on organ flushes and stuff like that, but he reversed everything. So I was uh, coming back to normal, but that kind of stress at that kind of level, because I wasn't trained or prepared for it. You know, we were just running to the finish line every single day without a thought. Um, our cognitive awareness of what we were going to, what we're doing just, just, and there's a lot of you listening right now, you're just crushing it with sales and that's all you care about. I'm crushing it with sales. But at the end of the day, if you're doing this for 10, 15 years, is this sustainable? Being busy, busy, busy all the time. Are you, are you busy? Are you achieving your goals? Are you leveraging it? And um, it was funny. The first time I was hanging out with my girlfriend, um, she looked at me and she goes, you know, you don't seem to be like, like she wanted me to hustle more. And I said, I don't waste energy anymore. I said, it's like the martial arts. You're coming at me a certain way. I'm not doing any fancy crap. I'm doing this. And she kind of started watching me. She goes, holy crap, you don't waste any time on busy work. I said, no. I said, I'm either strategically aligned with what I'm doing or forget it. So each step, each thing I do now, just simply because I'm older and maybe I hope a little wiser, <laughs> um, I now look at the goal I want to achieve and I work backwards and I make sure there's no fat in between, no wasted effort. It goes to the goal I want to hit. So it gets to its target faster and without as much stress as I used to put myself through. You know, you have to ask yourself, what amount of time during your day are you wasting being busy? And I'm a baby boomer, guys. You, you guys weren't raised this way, but we were expected to always be busy around our bosses. So a lot of baby boomers have learned to actually be busy all the time. But we're not getting any closer to our goals. So, you know, we're, we're used to the boss coming by and we're just shuffling papers and doing projects and, oh, I got to get better. And the second thing boomers were taught is they were taught that you, you can't get a raise because you're weak in these areas. You got to work on these weak areas. Well, those weak areas, you don't want me doing your taxes because I'm weak in math. I'm never going to be strong in math, but the way the system used to work is they wanted us to focus on, well, you got to get better at math. Why in the hell would I do that when I can hire a bookkeeper? <laughs> My job is to be the visionary. My job is to make an experience that makes people kind of go, holy crap, I can't believe I'm here. I'm having this great experience. That's my job. My job is not to stop at the end of the day and do my bookkeeping. My job is to buy the, the talents of a person who does that for a living every single day. You know, Jeff has taught me that as well when he talks about his leveraging. You know, he, he, because he was sick for so many years, he couldn't be physically in his businesses. So he had to hire people to run his businesses. And he learned to just, I have to be strategic in everything I do. And those of you listening right now, I want you to ask yourself, is some of the busy work you're doing your best use of your talents? Are you doing things that you're really not good at, but you're doing it because you're being cheap? There's nothing better than taking a little bit of cash and making sure you have a bookkeeper taking care of your, your prepping everything for taxes. What's up, winners? I know you're getting a lot of value from the show. Pop over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and tell a friend. Back to the show. Where, where do you think is a good place to start in that area where, you know, we, we hear about that topic a lot, <clears throat> masterminds and, and just social media. Like, 
Like, how do you know what to delegate? You know, how do you know when to pass something off? What should you be focusing your time on? You know, speaking to the entrepreneur. I'm a graphic designer. So it, it, I know there are moments where I probably shouldn't be doing the grunt work in the graphic design field. So here's a good example. Let's say I'm designing a book from inside to out. I probably should hire an interior designer to do the interior, you know, each page, each chapter, lay it out and use the type as almost like a design element because that is tedious work. It's very tedious. Now covers, that's glamorous. That makes people want to grab that cover and go, man, I got to buy this book. I'm really good at that. Boom. I can put it right in your face. So where do you think I should probably focus more? Probably on the covers because the covers win me business. The covers make people step up and go, man, I, I want that. I want that. I want a cover light designed by Brad Salas. Okay. So I know immediately what's going to pay the bills and I should farm out the rest. Now, that may make you freak out because it's like, well, now I have to share revenue with someone else. Well, you might be able to do five projects now instead of two or three because now you farmed it out, which means you can now make more money. There's always a point in every entrepreneur's life if they are truly in the growth mindset where they're going to freak out because now they got to let go of the old and embrace a new way of thinking and doing. And it's, it's always that moment where they're about to hire their first employee. Because now you have so much work coming in, you actually have to consider hiring somebody. You know what that's about. That first employee that you buy, buy into, that you say to yourself, hey, I got I to gotta have somebody here every day answering the phones. Or even if it's a virtual assistant. And we have to let go of this idea of, you know, if I don't do it, it ain't getting done right. Okay, <laughs> good luck with that. It may not get done at all. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's always that moment that if you're in a growth mindset, there's always that moment in an entrepreneur's life where you're freaking out and you go, I have to get that first employee. And that the moment you hire that employee and you're signing the check, now you're going, okay, I hope I have the same revenue coming in consistently. So now you're trying to up the game. And at some point, you know, you're building and building and building and building. And now you can have five employees and six employees. It's a matter of letting go. Um, I'm working with my girlfriend right now and she's working with this company. She built all the systems and everything. And the guy who hired her and made her a partner, he can't let go. And so if he doesn't let go soon, it's not going to be a business. It's just going to be a hodgepodge of software that they can sell with the system to a bunch of people. And it's going to be a one-off instead of a company. Mm. And it usually boils down to the owner founder not being able to make the leap. You know, we've all been there, man. You know, I've, we've all been there. If you're a real entrepreneur, you, you don't want a job. You know, a lot of people, they, their startup becomes a job for them. They're self-employed. They're right. their own boss. Right. They're your own boss. I'm making 70000 a year, you know. Well, you could do that working somewhere else. But I've got CEO in my bio, on my Instagram, Brad. Oh, man. You got to. <laughs> this is my favorite rant. Oh, we got a rant. Um, Larry. um you know the guy, um, the 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 pit bull of uh, personal development. I 
I'm missing his last name. Um, he loves to complain about this. He goes, do not put CEO in your bio unless you're hitting a million dollars a year. And he's right. And I see these people who are like, I want to change the universe. I'm the CEO of the company slash named after you, you know, international. You are not a C-level executive. That is, there's a specific title, chief executive officer, chief marketing officer, chief technical officer, chief financial officer. These are all for mostly publicly traded companies. There's a reason the title is there as a chief because you're the executive level. You're not managing the day-to-day. So people just love to use these terms because they, they want to go into a business meeting and go, I'm the CEO. You know, if you have five to 10 to 12 employees, you can now start calling See, yourself I, a CEO. I even have a problem using CEO. Maybe you can help me with this because you have way more corporate experience than, than myself, but you know, I own Quest Education. We do seven figures a year, low seven figures in revenue. Right. And there's what, 13 employees? I, when I put CEO and I don't, I'm just like, fuck, am I, am I CEO? I don't, <laughs> I don't have a board. Like I'll be talking to Roland about my press kit. I'm like, bro, do I put president, owner, but I think entrepreneur? Brad put, put, put a, a really good point there's difference between businesses and companies and we have a company yes and so there's a day when you put on your black belt for the first time to go to class is that moment where you put it on and you walk like a black belt you carry yourself like a black belt because you are a black belt you need to own the title of ceo you've built something extraordinary here daniel Daniel, I feel like I'm using his full name like his like his mom or dad would. Um, but Dan, you you know we've had we've had lunch and dinner how many times? Yeah. And I've just been so impressed with your strategic growth. And you bounce ideas off of us, and you say, "Hey, I'm doing this. What do you think?" And and you moved into this new space, and this is such a much better space than where you were before. You're making some really great moves. It's now time to look at yourself the way we look at you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And that goes back to what you said. I've never heard it phrased the way that you said it. And everyone listening to this can relate to this. We all have an image of what we think other people see us as. Yeah. Right? And that that fucks with you. It does. Um, And this may surprise people, but um, I was never called handsome, except by my mom. What? Yeah, through my whole life. I I know this sounds weird, um, but I'm, I'm... I'm opening up. I'm breaking down on the show here. You get people to cry, don't you? Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. It. I love it's, it. It's, it's that moment that, uh, yeah, Barbara Walters moment. Um, and I remember the first time I was dating somebody, this is like three, four years ago, who said I was handsome. I, I really like got a little choked up. I was like, really? You think so? I've been married before. My ex-wife never told me I was handsome. I think she thought I was going to get a big ego. You know, and I, so I was like, what, what, you know, the first time you're hearing something like that, and this may sound corny or stupid to some of you, but, um, my girlfriend now calls me handsome all the time. You're so handsome. And I'm like, you're gorgeous, baby. Get over here. Um, and now it flows differently, you know, and these little things in our life that we don't realize, maybe we need a pat on the back or maybe we need to acknowledge some of these things. They can redefine your life by letting them go and working on them. You know, you can stand up, you know, self-esteem issues. We all suffer from them on some level. 
And as entrepreneurs, maybe we think we deserve to be in the muck. Maybe we deserve to be slapped around and treated like crap and fail. I disagree with that. I think we can stand up and embrace it. You are the CEO. You've taken big strides, man. Uh, and you, you know, a lot of you listening, you've been working on your relationships with your, your spouse uh, while you're stressed out. You've been crushing it in, in, in business. Where is that part of you that's broken and hurt? And is that driving you? You know, you know what drove me for the longest time? You guys will appreciate this. My dad always felt, you're an artist. You're never going to amount to nothing. You're not going to make a dime. So I spent a long time trying to prove my dad wrong. I was driven to, to be, like rub it in my father's face. Yeah, mother, you know. <laughs> <laughs> talk your talk. Yeah. And I was, I remember standing out in the cold winter uh, of the fall, actually, on long, um, no, it was Staten Island. I was standing there looking up at the full moon in tears, trying to figure out why my company wasn't making money. And all of a sudden, this garbage truck goes by in the middle of the night. I mean, this is 1.30 in the morning. We, I know that sounds like, yeah, we see garbage trucks all the time in New York. No, not on Staten Island where I lived at 1.30 in the morning. And the garbage truck is going in the opposite direction of the dump. So it caught my attention. And there's a giant Z spray painted on the side of this pristine white dump truck or garbage truck. And I'm like, I felt like in that moment, God was talking to me just a secret language just for me. And I was like, and I started laughing. I burst out laughing and I realized what was happening. All the garbage in my life, Z is the end, alpha, omega, the end. All the garbage thinking ideas and the way I built my life up to that point were being carted away, driven away, taken out of my life and a new life was being created. And I started laughing and it wasn't a shift, you know, it, it took time to let go of that reacting to my father and I'm going to prove him wrong and all this stuff. And I decided I'm going to create the life I want to and live the way I want to live and do the things I want to do. And I'm going to start crushing it and let go of this anger towards my dad. And six months later, we went public on NASDAQ. <laughs> not, not a coincidence. No. Yeah. And so we attract things into our life. You know, if you believe in the law of attraction or magnetism, a lot of times why we're not attracting things into our life is because there's that one thing we're still pissed about, or there's that one thing we don't believe we're worthy of. And your subconscious mind is actually ruling everything, dictating everything. Um, I believe it's where the soul part of us is trying to connect to the the awake, aware part of us during the day. So the subconscious is really shouting out all these orders, you know, saying, hey, are you listening? You know, um, I don't know if you've seen the studies, they've measured brainwaves activity and they say, us sitting here right now, we're using like 2,000 neurons a second, something like that. Your subconscious, on the other hand, is firing off something like a billion neurons a second. It's taking into account it's recording everything that's happening around us Roland sitting there you know you know recording everything the cars that are going by bobby doing whatever she's doing out front it's recording all that even though we're not aware of it so when we start to shift or we want to make a shift that's bigger than 
our cognitive ability to even know how to get there, we have to let go of our what we think success is because that's a limited thought and let the subconscious take over to create something extraordinary. And that's one of the big things I learned when I created K2 because we had no money. How in the hell did we manifest a multi-million dollar corporation with no money? It's pure subconscious work that you have to work on. And sometimes it's those sticky emotions. And as men, we all have crap with our dads, okay? Uh, or even our moms. But we're, we're trying to deal with and create a new life and prove him wrong. I'll show him. Well, that's all bullshit. Step out of that and create something extraordinary for yourself. You know, do those things. The greatest moments I've had with my father is when I've broken him down and he admires me. And I didn't do it on purpose. It was just like, I remember after one of my big belt tests, I had to drive down to Pennsylvania to see him in the hospital. And I decided to show him the belt I got. And it was a a blue belt with a green stripe in the center. It was the one belt I really wanted. I walked in. My dad held that belt for two hours and wanted to hear everything I had gone through in my training. I was mesmerized by that. I was like, damn. And then... You know, my dad wasn't a big man when it came to telling me he was proud of me. You know, I was almost, I th- he told me he was proud of me once in my life. And I, I broke down. I cried. It's like, oh my God, he does love me, you know. Um, so he wasn't big on, on that. You know, he'd give me hugs and he was always there. Great advice. My dad gave great advice. <clears throat> but I remember after he died, we had to clean out his office. And I pulled out a copy of my first book, Liquid Leadership. And I opened it up, and it was my dad's copy. I had sent him an advanced reader copy. And he had marked up and dog-eared and highlighted his favorite phrases that I had written. And so I realized in that moment, my dad admired the hell out of me. But he couldn't tell me. And that was good enough for me. I didn't need to hear it. I still have a copy of that book on my shelf with all the dog-ears and the the post-it notes and the lines in it of all the things that he loved reading in the book. And he read it cover to cover. So it's a badass story. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you opening up like that. I, I just hear it in your voice and see it in your eyes, how, how genuine that, uh, that story was and, and you opening yeah. up uh, with us here today, like with everything you have going on right now, I mean, you bring a lot to the table in terms of life experience, business, and you know, just a ton. Um, I know you help out a lot of entrepreneurs. So yeah. like, you know, people listening right now that are like, yo, this Brad guy sounds like the shit. Like, <laughs> you know, if how- anything we could do some Kempo. <laughs> yeah, bro. You can show me how to kill. Kill a motherfucker. You can show me, you show me how, to, how I can forgive my parents, you know, and, and he can show me maybe how to take a company public, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just a lot that you can help people with. Yeah. What, where, uh, where do you fit in in the sense of like, who's your ideal person to help and, and, and how do you help them? Uh, I love working with entrepreneurs that are right at the cusp where they're freaking out. They might be ready for that first employee or they have some money or they need that first round of financing. I love to coach them through that and help them with that. Um, I have several people I'm working with right now and it's like they don't know how to raise money, you know, so they're freaking out. So um, I help them with their presentation. One of the the guys, he was creating a um, a real estate fund, okay? So the first one was going to be like... um, like 20 million. Okay. So I said to him, I go, okay, the way you talk 
to accredited investors is very different than the way you talk to non-accredited investors. So we trained him and got him up to speed with how to speak. He had a great personality. Well, he had, it, it was so successful, he created a separate fund with $100 million. So it's like, if you really want to go to that next level, um, and I, I've gotten into trouble. You know me, Dan. I'm kind of a big mouth sometimes. Um, I had somebody who was like, they wanted to coach me. And I said, well, you really can't coach me um, if you haven't achieved some of the things I've achieved. And she got really pissed at me. Never work with a coach who isn't working with a coach that's above them. I work with people who keep me on point that are above me so that I can be better and coach you. And so between consulting and coaching and showing people how to create a brand with your company, that's incredibly important to me. And I'm passionate about that as well. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they're right on the cusp of really making the big money. But there's one thing that is getting in the way. And it's either they're, they're caught up in the minutia. You know this. The thing you love to do is the th that made you start that company is the thing you're going to have to stop doing for the company to grow. And I come in and slap you on the hand. <laughs> it's it's stop that. <laughs> or, or, or or a hand to the neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Silent but deadly. Um, yeah. I, so you're really helping out that fucking, I mean, the pinnacle like that. That's the make or break point, I would say. Yeah, you know? because most entrepreneurs are struggling with that first year, first four years of uh, breaking through a million dollars. I can show you how to do that. You want to you make a million dollars? Okay, that's a start. But what do you want to do strategically to go to a bigger level, which is it's more than that. It's creating a brand. It's creating a company that people will step up and go, oh, man, I want to work there. Uh, you know, I'm, my girlfriend right now, she's working with somebody. I was telling you this before. He is resisting coaching because he knows I'm going to throw him on the mat, you know, verbally not physically, <laughs> um, and get on his case because he is a tinkerer. Do you ever meet people like this? They have a great idea for software and it's never finished. They're always tinkering, always playing with it. Well, I've seen a lot of great business ideas on a napkin, but they don't turn into a company. And that's where you have to figure out, can I do that? How do I do that? Get people into your world like me who know how to do that. So don't let those ideas, don't let those companies die on that napkin, y'all. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Amen. Where, uh, where's the best place for people to find you, Brad? You can just reach out, uh, send me an email at brad at liquidleadership.com. Uh, you can do a Google search. It'll be in the, the notes for the show. Um, you can see some of the things I've done. Uh, did a TED Talk. Um, for those of you who are interested on uh, how millennials think differently because of video games. I love that kind of oh, that's dope. stuff. Corporations hire me actually to help them reach uh, that next generation. Um, I had some, you've written a book, Dan, by the way. I want to take my hat off and uh, congratulate you here live uh, because I know that process. Uh, I remember when you were writing it. Yeah, you know, and then you finally got it published and it's out now. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank man. you, brother. You bet. Yeah, that was a pain in the ass. I know. But MF for sure. It yeah. is. It's like, uh, not to disrespect women, but it's like giving birth for a man because it, <laughs> it freaking is painful as hell. And, uh, oh my God. Yeah. The hell I went through in that first book. Uh, yeah. Because I, I insisted I must write every 
single nook and cranny in that book. So it's all me. Yeah. So. Go, uh, winners, go check out Brad's book, liquid leadership. So it's, it's a really good one. Then he's got a dope podcast too. Thanks. Uh, awaken nation. And you've had some amazing guests on there. And, uh, that's so, my passion project, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I, I can hear in your voice. Fill in the soul. Yeah. yeah well, you know, um, I, I have done, either been a guest or a host on over a hundred podcasts. Okay. So I got tired. I love the business conversation. They're the best, especially entrepreneurs, but I really got tired of the, the person that was coming on going, do you know how awesome I am? And here's my stuff, buy it and all this. And I said, I want to have a different conversation. So I remember when Chris Salem asked me to be on my show and I said, well, Chris, um, we're going to have to talk about your alcoholism. He goes, absolutely. We're going to talk about my alcoholism, my anger management issues, my heroin addiction, my sex addiction, and my anger and towards my dad. All that. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're perfect for the show. But we've had everyone on uh, Awakened Nation. Um, we had a nuclear physicist on who was smoking 50 cigarettes a day. And he, and he was like, Chernobyl? you're going to, you're going to die if you don't. Now he teaches and he does corporate Ironman trainings for companies. Uh, lives in Trinidad. Yeah. Nigel is a great guy. Um, we had a woman on who insisted um, she was abducted by a UFO uh, and four times impregnated uh, as well by an alien. And the only reason I put her on the show is man, she was on point on topic and one hell of an interview. And she'd been on a documentary. So we, I get to have these conversations I don't get to have in a, a regular business conversation. Um, I had Brian Smith on from Uggs, who founded Uggs. And we had this man-to-man talk. You know, he's from Australia. Uh, he got kicked out of his own company and had to work his way back in. Um, how do you come back from stuff like that? So I got to ask him some pretty deep questions. And him being Australian, he's like, yeah, crikey, that's a great question, Brad. <laughs> I, I, I love your accents, bro. Like, you yeah. had the Russian Vladimir Oh, my God. Nikolai was yeah. fucking on board. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I used to do voiceovers in New York, and it, it, it was quite by accident, way before K2. I used to do these big corporate events, so I would design them, and I'd do all the artwork. So one day, one of the producers comes to me and goes, we have to do some voiceovers for BMW. Can you do some regular people? So I would come in, and I would just, you know, do an older man buying a BMW, you know, or <laughs> so a young guy, you know, and all of a sudden I started taking voiceover classes and I was asked to do eight voices on legends of Zelda. Um, the, uh, the adventures of link, the 2.0. No kidding. So, uh, as Bradley Keith, cause that's my middle name. Uh, I came on and I did just those little voices, like where the dragon makes a noise or the King says something. Um, and yeah, I've done, so I, I actually um, do that in my my um, keynotes. I, I imitate my dad a lot, which is the funnest. He's I I'm your father. I'm not your goddamn friend. You know I do stuff <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, I used to get paid to you know be Christopher Walken uh, on the air. That was my thing. It was crazy. Wow, Dan, I can't believe. I'm on the show. You know what I'm thinking Boom. of is uh, Wedding Crashers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Guys, that's my baby girl. Uh, that's one of my favorite no, I, I like him in Joe Dirt. He's like, you're talking to my guy all wrong. You can't talk to him. Like I was that. waiting for the Russian one to say, if he dies, he dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But awesome. If he dies, he dies. What I feel like the... 
to wrap everything up, never stop reinventing yourself. Whether yeah. it's freaking jujitsu at fucking forty five, you know, taking a company public twenty years ago, you know, voiceover acting, yeah. never stop reinventing yourself. Never. Um, and if you're talented, you know, I I have talents in five different areas. I just enjoy having fun doing them. You know, I also draw and I paint. I play drums. You know, I do voices. This is my favorite. I I fascinate. Uh, my girlfriend, because uh, she has this great dog in our life, Oliver. And Oliver was a, uh, a dog, you know, we got from shelter. So he has no teeth in the front and his tongue is hanging out all the time. So um, I imitate him with a British accent. I'm like, mommy, daddy, I have to go dookie. We have to go out and dookie right now because, well, I've had a lot to eat. <laughs> so I do this whole thing with her. She just starts cracking up, you know, then uh, she's a keeper because, uh, Tao is her name, yeah. Tao. And uh, she likes Homer Simpson. I don't know what it is. Dope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I love Tao. Let's go out to eat. Ooh, donuts, you know. So, Damn, bro. You got, you, you got that down, man. You're a great storyteller. Yeah. Be able to. Uh, donuts. Let's, let's, let's hear Trump. You got Trump? Let me tell you, it's tremendous what you're doing here, Daniel. I love what you're doing. <laughs> it's it's tremendous. Be huge. It's bigly, Unbelievable. Bigly, bigly. <laughs> All right, I'm winners. A, I like Bill Clinton, though. I think he's the one. <laughs> do, do yourself a favor. Go follow uh, Brad Zalas. Uh, all of his information is going to be on the show notes. Um, he's, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Loved him. In, good. Indeed. Go, yeah. go give him a follow. And then uh, I know you guys got value out of this. Like, I know you yeah. guys laughed your ass off. I know he maybe got you crying, talking about your dad and your mom yeah. and all that kind of shit. So we know you got value. Do us a big favor. Go to iTunes. Leave us a review. Don't just give us five stars without the review. The review is really what makes the algorithm of our show. Let us know what you liked. Right? Go give Awaken Nation a, a follow while you're out there too yeah dan's yep. gonna be on the show soon we're gonna put him on because i want to hear about this growth in his book because uh entrepreneurs to me are the best stories because um it's really about resilience man figuring it out amen all right winners be resilient crush the week we'll see you guys next week peace peace, peace out thank you <laughs>